welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton and I'm here with my podcast buddy Jamie Jackson. And welcome back to our section on 100 Bloody Objects. And what object do you have for us today, Jamie? Object number 17, Driftwood. Disastrous expeditions can do and seriously don't. Well, I hope you've calibrated your compass and zeroed your altimeter, for we are about to set off on a journey of exploration. Anyone who has led any sort of life will have embarked on an expedition or two, some more hair-raising than others, but things can still go wrong. At centre parks, as they do paddling up the Limpopo or straddling Crib Goch wearing your grandpa's tweed suit and a pair of wellies. But in the field of human endeavour, there are some expeditions which end in a truly disastrous manner. Humans love to explore and set records on land, at the poles, at sea and in space. And some of these are undertaken by the amateur who may be ill-prepared or subject to bad luck. So let's get in amongst the bodies dangling from mountains, frozen in ice or bobbing amongst the waves awaiting a visit from Bruce. Jamie, summon the ghosts of Phileas Fogg and describe to me how often on expeditions reality bites. Reality bites in many different ways, Tom, and for many different reasons. It can be stupidity, overreach, chutzpah, bad luck, poor equipment, you name it. But any expedition has its risks, and sometimes it ends with a hard landing. You know, friends of mine back in the 1950s when they were children used to use coin-operated binoculars to see the bodies hanging on ropes from the north face of the Eiger. This was a tourist attraction. What lovely friends you have. Actually, I remember that was Vengen. We used to go take the children to Vengen. You could see, uh, the, uh, you could see the Eiger there. It was fantastic. And, and bodies are so often left on mountainsides. I mean, there, there are over 200 bodies still left on Everest. And, of course, there's green boots uh, suspected uh, to be the Indian climber Pandrel, who died in 1996. And his green boots were a marker for all expeditions going up the northeast face of Everest, the ridgeline, to, to get to the death zone. So these sort of markers, these waypoints, uh, a dot the entire planet. If you look at mountains like the Matterhorn, over 500 people have died climbing that. Over 60 people have died with the Eiger. So is that, are you saying that the, their death is not entirely in vain? I think you have to push forward. I mean, if you're on an expedition, you know there are risks and you know that it can end badly. Explorers and adventurers and navigators and cartographers, people like Captain James Cook, who was killed in 1779 in Hawaii. His men, of course, had taken two types of venereal disease to Hawaii, so I guess it was a kind of payback. But he tried to take a local chief uh, hostage in order to get a, a stolen longboat back and was stabbed through the neck and then clubbed. And actually, I think one of his clubs is in the British Museum, uh, one of the ones that uh, that hit him. So, you know, th this is what happens on expeditions. Yes. Uh, and, and, and some journeys are shorter than others. And uh, also some of these expedition leaders, they seem to be the kind of people who really need to die on the last day of battle going out in a blaze of bullets. 
or falling from the Eiffel Tower. If you think of someone like Franz Reichelt, who was the flying tailor, as he was known, who was an amateur parachutist, and he jumped 187 feet from the first stage of the Eiffel Tower in 1912 and plummeted to his death. And there's footage of people in top hats sort of measuring the crater he left. So you're always going to get these people. And as I said, sometimes it's bad equipment, sometimes it's bad luck, sometimes it's just poor judgment. So balloons came first, but uh, at the turn of the 20th century, aeroplanes made their appearance, and maybe it wasn't climbers, but people who liked being up in the air suddenly had a whole new part of the world they could explore. Who do you want to start with, Jamie? I think it's worth starting with Amelia Earhart, actually. She was such a pioneer and certainly the first female to cross the Atlantic. And she looked damn cool. She looked damn cool. She, she did some amazing things. And I always think that flying Eleanor Roosevelt after a dinner party at the White House around Washington, D.C. You think the loop, the loop. In a light aircraft, the in, 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 their, in their evening dresses and, and fur coats. That, that's, that's quite classy. But she took off in 1937 to circumnavigate the, the, the globe with her navigator, Fred Noonan, and they disappeared. Uh, they refueled in New Guinea, they had done 22,000 miles, but then they vanished. And it's always been open to speculation and conspiracy theories. Some people say that they landed several hundred miles south on another island and were castaways for a while before dying from starvation. Some people say they, was, they were taken captive by the Japanese. Uh, some people say they just crashed into the sea, which is actually the most likely. And communications were so poor in those days, quite apart from the technology, it was so basic. So if you had a fault, if you had a problem in midair, you were probably going to crash. Yeah, and I mean, they had things like, you know, single ignition systems, and if that went wrong, there was no backup. Completely, and you're always going to have problems with rough weather and that sort of thing, and, and, and it was very difficult to navigate when there were very few uh, locations to triangulate on. So uh, that, that, was, uh, that was poor old Amelia Earhart. I think my, um, my grandfather, um, between the wars, flying probably in India, where they had very ropey aeroplanes, and on one occasion his propeller came off. He t used to tell us this story when we were little... Um, and so, you know, the only thing he could do was was uh, was land wherever he was, and then try and get a message back to his base to bring him another propeller because it's gone flinging off. And he was wa he's waiting there for a while, and it went on and on. So he thought, well, he needs to go to the loo. So he went round the back of a bush, and sure enough, there was his propeller. <laughs> <laughs> Bolted it back on and went home. It was very make do and can do and that 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 really is what marks out these these pioneers and e even into the sort of 20th century you, you look someone like richard branson and his virgin atlantic flyer the 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 balloon trip across the atlantic with pearl lindstrand where he he sort of touched the water near near ireland it ended up in the water uh, for about two hours they, they both thought the other was dead but it was an extraordinary flight. And, and these are the people who sort of push the boundaries. Mm. And you take someone like Steve Fawcett, who was also an extraordinary pioneer in flying and both balloons and in aircraft. And 
2002, he took the Spirit of Freedom balloon and circumnavigated the globe in it. I mean, it was absolutely amazing. I think it took 13 days, eight hours. But that was an extraordinary trip. In 2005, he followed up with the Virgin Atlantic Global Flyer, which sounds like a sort of a, a, a ticket offer, plugging the Virgin brand. But this was the first unrefueled circumnavigation of the globe in an aircraft, and he took about 67 hours. And again, an extraordinary trip. But like so many of the adventurers, it's later on that things went wrong, and something so prosaic is just going on a light aircraft from his ranch in Nevada, and he crashed in uh, California, in the in the highlands. And his body wasn't actually found. This is in the middle of America. His body and the crash site weren't found for 13 months. Yeah. So it says a lot about how difficult it is to find the remains. But this is what happens. with that so the same many... guy who was trying to find the Chinese balloon floating over America? Yeah, I mean, they, they, they spotted that a few times and never brought that down. But, but, but balloons tend to have bad endings. Yeah. You can go back to the pioneers of ballooning, long-distance ballooning, 1897, and the S.A. Andre, Salomon Andre, the physicist and adventurer and balloonist, who took a hydrogen balloon with two others and was attempting... This was backed by the Swedish government and the Swedish royal family, great fanfare... And he took off, just like Phileas Fogg, you mentioned in your introduction. And this was a hydrogen balloon. He thought he could steer it with drag ropes. He thought it would be a 30-day trip sailing across to, to Russia in this, in this hydrogen balloon. It arrived from France, where it had been built. It was already leaking, but he took off, didn't really prepare. And... Some say it crashed after 10 hours, some say two days, but it took them three months trying to trudge back across the uh, shifting uh, Arctic ice, the ice flows, and shooting polar bears and eating them. And they think that that's what killed all three of them eventually, catching botulinum from the polar bears they were eating. And the toxic polar bear liver. The toxic polar bear liver, so or from parasites. I mean, mm. the whole thing was a complete catastrophe. And no one found their bodies for 33 years. It wasn't until 1930 that a, a scientific expedition stumbled upon their, their, their remains, their, their sort of mummified remains and their campsite. But it was a, a pretty dismal end. But again, this is what happens time and again. And quite often, just as the hydrogen balloon leaked, so often... It's that early technology that lets you down. And we'll talk about Scott's uh, Antarctic expedition. Uh, and that was let down in many ways by having motorised sledges and not having the engineers there or the mechanics there to, to help keep them going or, or to deal with them in that sort of cold environment. It's the technology as well as the overreach that lets these expeditions down. And it seems that often the difference, the margin between success and failure is if the person involved, particularly the leader, is going to dot every I and cross every T, take as much care as possible, given the likelihood of all the things that could go wrong, to mitigate those things. And, I mean, we've talked about airmen in the First World War, the ones that tended to survive, were the ones who took a keen interest in how their aircraft 
um, were actually put together and maintained and spoke to their engineers and knew as much as possible because it was a high-risk endeavour and you could reduce the chances of failure by a small amount if you at least took as much care as you possibly could. And, and really think about the environment in which they're operating. It, it's no coincidence that Amundsen got to the South Pole successfully and survived, brought his men back. Well, he trained for three years or something. He certainly trained for three years and trained on skis, which is something that Scott's lot never did. Scott was wearing wool. Uh, Amundsen's lot wore furs. Again, we'll talk about this later, but you, you can sort of see the difference. And you come to the present day, you, you look at Arctic warfare vehicles, you, you look at the US Army, they've just ordered a new cold-weather all-terrain vehicle. What do they order? They order the Swedish Hagland CVS-10, or a derivative of it, the, the unarmoured Beowulf. Well, on, on the basis that the Swedes know what they're doing. They know what they're doing, and yeah. they, they've trialled this, tested it. It's been used by commando forces and, and forces operating in the Arctic for years. And so they, of course, are going to have the best technology. So you can see all the way through history, it's the people who know the, the, the region, know the technology, uh, know how to apply that technology and train for it that are going to have the best chance of succeeding. You couldn't say that it was an expedition as such, but there was a rather remarkable story at the beginning of the Second World War when one of Hitler's very close henchmen, Rudolf Hess, decided to hop into a Messerschmitt and fly to Britain. Yes, Rudolf Hess was deputy Führer. And this, again, the reason it's worth bringing in, because it's about someone who doesn't understand the situation. I mean, he, he was later diagnosed by psychiatrists as being schizoid and paranoid and uh, essentially, essentially bonkers. Essentially alone. Yeah. And he, he didn't really know what he was flying into. He, he, he set off in this mesh. Apart Schmitt. from your pun. <laughs> <laughs> but he set off in his Messerschmitt, parachuted into an area south of Glasgow, thinking he could meet the Duke of Hamilton, that he believed had, was running a sort of anti-Churchill, pro-Nazi, or at least pro-peace coalition in Britain. And he just misread the situation and then spent the next 46 years or so incarcerated, most of it in Spando jail. He actually spent four days in the Tower of London as well. But this is what happens if you don't understand the environment in which you're, you're heading into. And uh, so it's worth bringing someone like Rudolf Hess in. It's, it's because it's part of the same strand of amateurism, if you like, of, of putting your own beliefs ahead of, of reality. And, and being and, carried and, on by a hopeless idea. Yes, yes. So, so I, I think it's worth putting, in a, uh, putting him in as Keeping a disastrous, disastrous expedition. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and perhaps Charles Lindbergh gets a mention too. Well, he gets a mention because uh, of really what happened to his baby and, and the kidnap and murder of his, of his child because so often with these adventurers, with these explorers, with these aviators, it, it's the life afterwards that is unhappy, that, that, that doesn't reach the heights that they reached and that the fame and fortune... He was enormously famous. He, he was enormously famous. I mean, if you look at the accolades and plaudits he won and the 
adulation he gained going around America after his trip across uh, the Atlantic in the spirit of St. Louis. You can see that that this is, you know, it it was real fame. It was was real celebrity. But the the, the horrors of it, the the, the sort of blowback from it and and the sort of pain of what happened after the, the murder, the kidnap and murder of his child and the execution of the of the man who uh, took the child and murdered him um you know you can see that that reality is often very different and that's why they should probably go in a hail of bullets yeah maybe that is the answer seated one day at the tom tom i heard a welcome shout from the kitchen come and get it a roast leg of insurance salesman a chorus of yums ran round the table. Yum, 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 yum. Except for Junior, who pushed away his shell, got up from his log, and said, I don't want any part of it. What? Why not? I don't eat people. Hey? I won't eat people. Huh? I don't eat people. I must be going deep. Eating people is wrong. It's wrong. Don't eat people. You've gone clean out of your mind. I won't eat people. What's the matter with the lad? Don't eat people. He keeps on repeating. Eating people is bad. And sometimes, Jamie, expeditions go so disastrously wrong that the people on the expedition end up uh, being cooked by cannibals. And at this stage, I am not going to tell my my story about the uh, the cannibals who uh, eat the Englishman, the Frenchman and the New Yorker and turn their bodies into canoes. Uh, and nor am I going to sing Flanders and Swan's song um, I Won't Eat People because eating people is wrong as they tuck into a, um, what is it, a r- roast leg of insurance salesman. <laughs> <laughs> um, can, uh, can I go straight to the punchline where the New Yorker stabs himself with a fork and goes, sod your canoes. <laughs> yeah, no, you wouldn't. Nobody will ever hear that story properly <laughs> told now. No. Um, but we have a little something from my favourite Frenchman, Michel Montaigne, towards the end of this section. Meanwhile, Jamie, where did cannibalism take place well cannibalism is worth mentioning because as you say so many of these expeditions ran into cannibals or or, or had to resort to cannibalism themselves in order to survive but cannibalism as a whole was prevalent throughout the world in many areas of the world not really for 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 just eating not but but so often it had a ritualistic aspect to it whether it was to humiliate the enemy or to gain the strength of the enemy or to acquire the spirit of the enemy There, there were so many different aspects and quite often a sort of religious aspect to it and you can go back to the 1520s when the aztecs uh, ambushed, attacked a group of conquistadors and ended up, there is archaeological evidence for this, uh, eating several hundred uh, Spaniards and the the locals who were travelling with them. And as we know, the Aztecs in battle tended to use swords edged with obsidian, volcanic glass, so they could wound the enemy and, and capture them rather than kill them because they wanted them alive so they could perform human sacrifice. And I've seen the box in which the Aztecs put the, the, the human hearts, the still beating hearts. So eating part of your enemy 
was was pretty pretty prevalent. So whether you go to New Zealand and the Maoris, that seems to have been airbrushed out of history. The fact that the Maoris uh, practice cannibalism. You look at the Iroquoian tribes in uh, America. You know, certainly groups like the Mohawks practice cannibalism during the Jamestown settlement. The establishment of that from 1607, there were certainly cannibal tribes uh, across the falls, further up the Jamestown River. So, but, the, but the settlers themselves tucked into each other. They certainly did. Uh, and th- this is what, what we've talked about. Well, this is what we've mentioned, is that if it goes badly wrong, then cannibalism starts creeping in. And yes, the Jamestown settlers, certainly in that terrible uh, winter of 1609, 1610, they were certainly resorting to cannibalism. And in terms of disastrous expeditions, you can see the first resupply from England in the Sea Venture ship. That crashed into rocks uh, off Bermuda, and they ended up being stranded there. But they turned tragedy and disaster into triumph by cannibalizing that ship, using local wood, building two more ships and sailing on to Bermuda. With uh, meanwhile, the having a big row with each other at the same time. Yeah, that's that, that, that's human nature, isn't it? Yes, they ended up setting up rival camps on, on, on different sides of the island, different ends of the beach. So, so this is this is what happens on expeditions. But, but back to the, the Maoris you mentioned in in eighteen oh nine. What went on? What happened there? Well, there was a, a ship called the Boyd that was picking up timber. And they were attacked by Maoris, and there's certainly strong evidence that there was cannibalism practiced on the survivors. And uh, again, there, there was a ritualistic aspect to it. Mm-hmm. There, there is this sort of uh, cooking your enemy and making them know what's going to happen to them uh, that, that that was was prevalent in many parts of the world. Right up into the 20th century, you have the Leopard Society uh, across swathes of Africa, starting in places like Sierra Leone, Liberia, and, and spreading outwards from there, where, where capturing, killing, and eating uh, other humans was, was part of the ritual, part of their practice. And the image we have of the missionary being cooked up for dinner is that he's sitting in a pot which seems rather strange given that uh, some of these tribes wouldn't be able to um, make such a thing. But it turns out that it's possibly the whalers that were all over the world um, uh, harpooning whales and then rendering down uh, their bodies for oil and so on, that it would have been their pots which had been sold. And And quite often captives were roasted rather than boiled. If you take uh, 1867, uh, Thomas Baker, the Methodist missionary in Fiji, uh, there was an altercation over a comb and he wanted the comb back from a tribal chief. So he had his head stove in with a rock and he ended up being roasted. And and actually, I think he he ended up in a pot too because they still have his boot leather uh, on display in Suva and the rock. (laughs) <laughs> that, that 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 caved his head in. So this was going on. You didn't want to be a lone missionary. Actually, he had seven uh, Fijians with him who were also killed. But you know, you didn't want to be a, a, a missionary in far flung corners of the world and fall out with the locals because this is what could happen to you. And it's um, a theme throughout this uh, talk of, of, dis- of these disastrous expeditions that, um, unfortunately, when it, 
when you come a cropper and your expedition sort of grinds to a halt, somebody tries to eat you, do you, and or do something particularly unspeakable to you as a sort of final um, throw of the dice. Well, it is sort of Lord of the Flies, isn't it? Yes. Actually, I remember when I, when I was at law school, there was a law uh, ab- about cannibalism but the, the, it wasn't illegal but actually what was illegal was murdering someone in order to eat them <laughs> okay so if you found them you could you could eat them up yeah i don't think there yeah. was a law i'll have to check on, on on whether that law has been changed but Do you it think goes... if you get a note from the person you're going to eat saying i don't mind that that's okay yeah i think there was yeah. that please wasn't, eat me wasn't that case in germany of someone who volunteered oh. to be eaten <laughs> that was pretty recent it's very german yeah <laughs> I'm saying nothing. <laughs> You're saying no, I know. When you've got lots of German blood coursing through your great veins, haven't you? But, uh, but you know, you go on to the the terrible air crash in the Andes in 1972. Yeah, that was the Uruguayan Air Force flight, um, which was chartered to take uh, 45 people, and it was known as the miracle of the Andes. Of 40 people plus five crew and the inexperienced pilot. Um, made a mistake and managed to hit the top of a mountain um, on his way to come down to an altitude to land. So they ended up actually in in, the Andes in Argentina. Um, And they had a terrible time of it. I mean, it was made into a quite well-known film called Alive. But um, they initially, they had quite a lot of casualties. Um, So there were 12 that were killed at the start. But then halfway through their experience, um, there was an avalanche which then killed as much again and they ended up with 29 fatalities. And essentially, there was just no food. They had very little food on the plane. And so they could never get their energy levels up to scramble over the mountains to help. Um, So eventually, two of the passengers, they had a rugby team as the uh, passengers, the old Christians Club rugby union team from Montevideo, um, so hopefully one or two of those boys were quite uh, fit to start with, but um, a couple of them managed to scramble over the mountains and get help. And then uh, th- they did that because they had eaten some of the flesh of the dead uh, passengers. Well, and, so, and, and, and the, the, the survivors, there were, there were 16 survivors, they survived for 72 days. And it just goes to show that they wouldn't have survived had they been vegan or vegetarian. So there is a lesson in that. Do you think Darwin strikes again? I think I think Darwin does strike again. I don't think they would have been able to get over the mountain or no, survive. You, know, you can't get rid of them. They probably would have survived. You know, they'd have been the last one sucking on a weed. On a lentil. <laughs> Chewing on a lentil. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. But uh, but but it just shows that that, that in extremists, you know, humans will turn to anything in order to, to get through. And, and it came out initially, there was a sort of shock horror and people were, you know, having having been thrilled to find them alive. They then uh, got some quite bad press. But eventually when they examined the evidence, um, it was seen that the passengers who then died had actually given them a, a, a sort of the OK that if they did die, that it was all right to eat them. So yes, I, I'm about to break into Flanders and Swan. <laughs> but, uh, but 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 the, uh, but but I think what caused the outcry was was the photograph of a half-eaten human leg in the Chilean press. <laughs> that yes, that seemed to set it set it off. It reminds me of that um, episode when we were talking about uh, the true the, dogs of war. The true dogs of war when the when the British general um, had his leg damaged and so it was chopped off and he happened to have a pet lion and he was going to feed it uh, to Poilu. 
um, for, as rations, but they decided it was a bad idea. Yeah, he'd become a man-eater. So that's the thing. People get a taste for it. This is an extract from Michel de Montaigne's 16th-century essay of cannibals. They have their wars with the nations beyond the mountains, further inland, to which they go quite naked, with no other arms than bows or wooden swords ending in a sharp point, in the manner of the tongues of our boar spears. It is astonishing what firmness they show in their combats, which never end but in slaughter and bloodshed, for as to rout and terror, they know nothing of either. Each man brings back as his trophy the head of the enemy he has killed, and sets it up at the entrance to his dwelling. After they have treated their prisoners well for a long time with all the hospitality they can think of, each man who has a prisoner calls a great assembly of his acquaintances. He ties a rope to one of the prisoner's arms, by the end of which he holds him, a few steps away, for fear of being hurt, and gives his dearest friend the other arm to hold in the same way, and these two, in the presence of the whole assembly, kill him with their swords. This done, they roast him and eat him in common and send some pieces to their absent friends. This is not, as people think, for nourishment, as of the old Scythians used to do. It is to betoken an extreme revenge. And the proof of this came when they saw the Portuguese, who had joined forces with their adversaries, inflict a different kind of death on them when they took them prisoner, which was to bury them up to the waist, shoot the rest of their body full of arrows, and afterward hang them. They thought that these people from the other world, being men who had sown the knowledge of many vices among their neighbours and were much greater masters than themselves of every sort of wickedness, did not adopt this sort of vengeance without some reason, and that it must be more painful than their own. So they began to give up their old method and to follow this one. I am not sorry that we noticed the barbarous horror of such acts, but I am heartily sorry that, judging their faults rightly, we should be so blind to our own. I think there is more barbarity in eating a man alive than in eating him dead, and in tearing by tortures the rack of a body still full of feeling, in roasting a man bit by bit, in having him bitten and mangled by dogs and swine, as we have not only read but seen within fresh memory, not among ancient enemies but among neighbours and fellow citizens, and what is worse, on the pretext of piety and religion, than in roasting him and eating him after he is dead. There have been a number of expeditions to the North and South Pole, and they tend to become quite famous. Um, of course, Captain Scott being perhaps one of the most famous uh, for young British enthusiasts. So perhaps we should start with the Scott expedition. Yes, Captain Scott, all, always played by Kenneth Moore, of course. <laughs> Yes, he well, played he's got a every great head Br of hair. Yeah, every form. British hero from, yeah. from Captain Scott, Douglas Bader, you name it. But the Scott expedition always stands out, not, not only for, for its heroism, but also for the miscalculations that could be made. And we, we mentioned this earlier, this, this, the, the, the rivalry between Scott and Amundsen and, 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 and the different approaches to the expeditions. The fact that Amundsen took four men and Scott took five men, that Scott had science on his mind when he went on it. They were collecting rock samples. Amundsen just wanted to get to the South Pole. That, that was his key 
reason for training for for three years for His training mission. on skis. Yeah, he 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 had a single goal, and th- that's one thing that that often defines expeditions. If you have a, a, a known goal, and I I think the amateurism we talked about this in our podcast on uh, what was it the uh, yeah the stiff upper lip. And you can see that with Scott. I mean, they were incredibly heroic, incredibly brave. But it was flawed from the start. The fact that he didn't want to take dogs because he had had bad experiences looking after them, feeding them on previous expeditions. He took horses, but the horses didn't have snowshoes. So they were a disaster as well. The motorised sledges were a disaster. He had the wrong clothes. He had the wrong clothes. He couldn't ski. The the fuel was leaked out. They didn't place their caches of food sensibly. So everything that could go wrong did go wrong. And we know the outcome. We know that they eventually made it to the South Pole and realised that Amundsen, the black flag, was flying there. Amundsen had got there first. It was a catastrophe, and Amundsen was so much better prepared for that expedition. But there were other expeditions at the same time. You look at the uh, Australasian Antarctic expedition, again, a scientific expedition led by Douglas Mawson. The, the, the successes really came years later when the scientific data was sort of processed and what they had achieved was really appreciated. But they weren't trying to get to a specific point. They were trying to do mapping and examine that, those bits of the Antarctic that faced up towards Australia. Yes, they were, they were mapping the coastline. They managed to travel about 2,500 miles, but right from the start, there were problems. I mean, uh, Ninnis, one of the team members, he fell down a crevasse, and he was carrying the sledge with the tent and the food. So they were left with no food. The other two members, the three of them, um, didn't have any food, didn't have any shelter. They tried to shelter under a, a sledge. The second member of the expedition, Mertz, he died from disease and illness. And it was just Mawson himself who was left. And he, he suffered from snow blindness. But he still managed to trudge back five miles a day and get back to camp, by which time his ship had left. And he was left with six members of a relief crew for another year. So he had a most terrible time um, on that expedition. He didn't resort to cannibalism, but they did They did eat their dogs, didn't they? They did, they did. In, in the I same think way, the dogs quite often got ate. They, they did. Two of the dogs had gone down the crevasse with, with, with Ninnis, of course. But but Amazon at his dogs. It's one of the reasons they they took uh, they took those animals. It, it was it was a, a food resource uh, as well as something to pull the sledges. Mag- Maggie's not in here, so it's all right. <laughs> his coverer is, but you know th- these are the sorts of things that can go wrong uh, with an expedition. And you look at the Shackleton expedition, the Imperial ex- expedition of nineteen fourteen, and although. They survived. He got all his men back in the end. It was an extraordinarily dangerous situation. I mean, the fact that his ship Endurance sank, the fact that he and whaling boats ended up on Elephant Island, the fact that he he took one of the lifeboats, one of the longboats, 20 feet long, 
with five of them in this boat, including a carpenter that he had had a row with. It, it was an amazing feat to get 720 miles across that southern Antarctic Ocean. I mean, incredible. Uh, 15 days in an open boat, uh, going through storms that had actually sunk a freighter coming from Argentina to South Georgia, and yet he survived. And then they landed, and he managed to take two of his companions across the mountains to the other side of South Georgia uh, on on this extraordinary 36-hour trip, 32 miles he covered. Uh, and they they put nails in their boots, they had one length of rope, and they still managed to do it. Yeah, 50, 50 foot of rope. Yeah, amazing. And and you know, the, the 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 I mean you think of how the SAS got stranded on South Georgia when their helicopters crashed when they were hit by a blizzard. You know, these are the sort of conditions that Shackleton faced. And that was after fifteen days in an open boat. So it was incredible, these the the, the hardiness of these people. Uh, and and it's it's ironic and sad that years later Shackleton died on South Georgia from a heart attack uh, in his 40s. He so put a lot of mileage on he, his body. A lot of mileage and a lot of alcohol. He, <laughs> yeah, what did his, his doctor told him he should give up the booze and he said, you know, you know the usual argument, you know, you're trying to ruin my life, yeah, well, make it well, miserable. Everyone of that generation, I mean, if you didn't start the day with a brandy. <laughs> yeah, you'd need to. Yeah. But, but the, um, the explorer, Duncan Cass, in 1955, travelled the same route. And, I mean, he was astonished by what they'd achieved and said, I don't know how they did it, except that they had to. Three men of the heroic age of Antarctic exploration with 50 foot of rope between them. And a carpenter's ads. I mean, I mean, it, it's the improvisation that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, they really turned their hand to anything. So you, you, you know, that was the golden age, but also the most tragic age of, of Antarctic exploration. And I mean, uh, you know, 1916. It's in the middle of the war, so the focus is not really on them. And those men finally returned back to Britain, didn't they? They did, and I think three were killed in the Great War. Five were wounded. So it wasn't, it wasn't the end of the story. And, and you know, we mentioned this, what happens to so many of these explorers. It, what happens next is really a, a sad epilogue to their life of adventure. There are many places to come unstuck on your expedition and two favourites are deserts and jungles. Yeah, less so with deserts because you don't tend to try and traverse a desert on your own. It, you need backup or a camel train to get you through. It's no accident that Arab caram- cameleers used to, to basically shelter inside the, 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 the carcasses of dead camels. and That was always a very useful uh, shelter on those trips. And you tended to go from oasis to a- oasis. So, yes, you do get disappearances like the Chinese biologist who disappeared near Lopnor in 1980 looking for water. But these are quite rare because people tend to stray um, from their campsites in which they're staying. They don't tend to go out on their own into the desert. They can still be um, an epic. I mean, the the Lawrence of Arabia attack where he had to cross the Great Desert. 
Yes, they're, they're, whether you're crossing the Sinai or elsewhere or the Great Depression or, or you're operating in warfare, yes, it can be a very unforgiving environment. But you tend, don't tend to explore because there are very few places to reach. You know, It's not like going for the summit of a mountain. So, mind you, what, what that Chinese biologist found in Lop Nor, given that I think that's where the Chinese do a lot of their nuclear tests, he might have fallen into a, a large hole created by an underground nuclear test. Well, jungles, of course, they're, they're places to explore and get lost and come a cropper. Yes, and people have been exploring. I mean, if you, if you look at the Elizabethan era, for example, I mean, there were people looking for El Dorado. So there were always expeditions. If you look at the conquistadors going in uh, throughout Latin America, they were going into the hinterland and sometimes coming a cropper. I mean, right up to, say, 1925, you had someone like Percy Fawcett going with his son and, and another friend and heading into the sort of wilderness of Brazil to try and find what he thought would be the the, the hidden city, the secret city, uh, the magical city of Z or Z for our American listeners. So people are always drawn to these areas, these unexplored areas, or finding the Amazon. I mean, look at the... Or, but also with Fawcett's expedition, he gave fairly clear instructions for people to not come looking for him. And yet a lot of people do go looking for and, him. And, and some would, some died in the process. They, they certainly did. And if you look at the local tribes, they all told stories that they had uh, either seen Fawcett or he was going into an area where there was an aggressive tribe who would kill them. And they were very territorial and certainly along the east coast of brazil as we mentioned earlier there were a lot of cannibal tribes there as well but this exploration into jungle along rivers it's always been there you look at blashford snell and his expeditions uh, there was a friend of mine who was going along a tributary of the nile that, that hadn't really been explored he was shot at by local tribesmen and uh, paddled quickly away Blashford, Blashford Snell was in uh, Belize when I was posted there in the mid eighties. Um, on some, we occasionally had to pluck them out of somewhere because they got a bit stuck. Towards the end of my time there, I was sent to the north of the country, where it was a bit more open, and um, told to go on a, a patrol in Land Rovers, which was sheer luxury because normally we were on foot. And so I was given a couple of Land Rovers and radios and rations and set off. Uh, towards the border with Guatemala. And there was, on my map, a, a track marked from the south part of where we arrived on the border up to the north, um, where the um, where there was farming land. So I thought, well, we'll have a crack at that, even though I'd been told not to do it, because it was impassable. Anyway, several days later, I was firmly lost in the jungle. And we had slightly run out by then of rations. So we had this balloon that we filled with helium and would raise above the canopy and then the helicopters could fly us in extra rations where the balloon is but we were so far off course they couldn't even see our balloon floating from the canopy um, it is very very difficult to know your location in the jungle it's it's navigating in the jungle is one of the most challenging things yeah. well there was no gps and we were eventually our land rovers were almost completely destroyed by the end of the week um, as we had to sort of bounce along the track by aiming for trees and bouncing off them onto the next bit of the track. <laughs> Eventually we got to, almost to the top and I went on foot to find some Mennonite farmers 
um, who we thought were up there. And sure enough, we found one with a tractor. So we pulled our two completely destroyed Land Rovers into the Grenadiers camp uh, behind the, um, the Mennonite tractor. And I was very pleased with my amazing expedition, but I wasn't greeted with any kind of applause. But a tractor, I thought they were against all those sort of things. Or no, the Mennonites the are slightly less, uh, extre- they're slightly less extreme oh, really? I think, they, than they, the Amish. They, they embrace technology. A certain amount of it, but so, they still, you know. Yeah. So you, you didn't end up being called um, Plank Maker Tom? <laughs> Certainly not. Hero, but, hero of the Jungle Tom. Barn Builder Tom. Tom. Yeah. But all these, all these locations, they, 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 they attract adventure, they attract discovery and exploration. And, and mountains have always been there. I mean, we all know the comment by George Mallory because it's there. And that's what killed him in 1924. Do you think one of the reasons why there are quite a lot of Brits who like doing this is because we don't really have serious mountains in this country, so we have to go and conquer other peoples? Partly, and a lot of the people, that great era of exploration uh, from from the sort of early 20th century, and certainly after the Great War, a lot of them had been in the Great War, so they were looking for a bit of adventure. I mean, nothing could beat the horrors of the Western Front. So they decided... Let's let's go on and explore, and it certainly explains the sort of uh, approach of people like Percy Fawcett, for example, and and probably George Mallory, who had also been in the Great War. Well, uh, there's a description in Robert Graves' book Goodbye to All That. He was a friend of Mallory's and was climbing, I think, in Snowdon with him, and they got to the bottom of whatever bit it was they were climbing, and Mallory had left something of his, like his wallet, at the top. So he said, well, just wait here and I'll just go and get it. And he just scrabbled up the slope and then came back down with whatever it was he'd forgotten. And Graves said that later on, when the weather had cleared, he went back to look at that bit and it was a sort of sheer cliff. Uh, And Mallory had the reputation for being a sort of magical climber. He could do things that others really couldn't. But, I mean, climbers are a particular breed. I mean, I know several climbers who don't have any toes. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, even on my Outward Bound course, the guy was very proudly had no toes. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a sort of... Badge of honour. Badge of honour. Yeah, you haven't been to the extremes if you've still got all your digits, basically, or your toes. I mean, it's, it's just absolutely amazing. But, but, you know, if you think that it took 75 years to find Mallory's body... It just shows that the wilderness, that the inaccessibility of these mountain passes, these mountain climbs. Yeah. And, and, and uh, I mean, the Matterhorn, the, the glacier on the side of the Matterhorn um, throws out climbers that have been lost decades before uh, at the top and then the, uh, they're taken down by the ice and even heard of stories of old ladies having to go and identify their husbands who look sort of 21 years old. We we move forward to 1936 and that terrible episode on the north face of the Eiger when five climbers were killed. Uh, one had been killed training, and then Hinterstoiser, Andreas Hinterstoiser, the famous climber. He was only 21, mm. but you know they named the Hinterstoiser Traverse after him because he was such an extraordinary figure, a great climber. But this was summer climbing, and, and the real killer on the, on the north face of the Eiger, as it so often is with, with mountain climbing, is, is rockfall. I mean, that is the real problem. And they were 
ascending the north face and they were hit by an avalanche of, of rocks and Hintersoyce was swept off. He was dealing with the ropes at the time, so he wasn't roped up to the others. And if you look at the other three, what happened to them, one slammed into the rock, was killed. Uh, the, the one at the top, he asphyxiated from the weight of everyone else below him. And the guy in the middle, the guy, uh, Tony Kurtz, he took a day to die from cold, and they tried to, you know, there were those who tried to rescue him, pass a rope to him, but he simply couldn't thread it through. He couldn't, he couldn't, the carabiner. Lower, yeah, he couldn't yeah. lower himself down or, or do anything, and he just said, I, I can go no further, and died. And it took several weeks to bring those bodies down, but, but at least they were brought down. But it, it just shows the risks that occur in those sort of climbing accidents. And you're always hearing the mountain accidents. You're always hearing people pushing themselves to the limit. And it's, it's often bad luck rather than poor preparation that, that gets them in the end. There have, of course, been many expeditions at sea um, because people are always wanting to know what's over the horizon. And uh, that includes the Atlantic. And ghost ships and stories of <laughs> unknown vessels that are sighted. Triangle. Yeah, they're all, they're, it's it, like all these other places, or these, all these places that were unexplored, or uh, stories of dragons or sea monsters. You're always going to get uh, you know, maps drawn with sea monsters, for example. Uh, the unknown has always been fascinating for people, and the sea is one of them. And there's always that legend, uh, maybe a myth, that in the early 14th century, the uh, Sultan of Mali sent 200 ships out across the Atlantic, and one ship came back and talked of this stream, maybe the Gulf Stream, that carried all the other ships away. So he ended up sending 2,000 ships off. But you have to wonder, if you were sultan of a nation or of a tribe or a people who weren't ocean traders, who simply potted along the coast trading, would you really send fleets out into the vastness of the ocean? And the answer is probably not. And you look at what happened to uh, boats later on, ships later on. You know, they, they didn't fare particularly well. I mean, we talked about the sea venture going out to resupply the Jamestown settlement in the early 17th century. When they hit a storm and the seams started coming apart, they were, they were corking it with, with slabs of meat. And you look at the longboat of Shackleton's expedition, he was using seal blood to try and make it waterproof, try and seal the seams. So there was a lot of improvisation and there was always scope for disaster just around the corner. And a very famous expedition, of course, was that of Captain Sir John Franklin and his uh, navigation of the Northwest Passage above Canada. Yeah, that was a disastrous expedition, but, but, but very Victorian in, in what it hoped to achieve. The fact that they got stuck in the ice in the Victoria Straits near King William Island uh, were there for a year. John Franklin died from pneumonia, and his subordinate ba basically tried to get the rest of the crew, what, what remained of the 129 originals, uh, across the frozen vastness to, to, to Canada uh, to save his men. And they found corpses since that have been mummified. And 
they had a terrible time. Like those other expeditions we talked about, there, there is proof of cannibalism. There's certainly proof of starvation. They think that everything from dysentery to pneumonia... Polar to, bears again. Uh, polar bears. There were all sorts of problems. It's even been said that the men uh, died from lead poisoning from the cans of food that they had originally before the food ran out. So it, it was a most terrible expedition and, and one of the great disasters. And they have found the wrecks since of the Erebus and the Terror, uh, also terrible names for ships that are going on an Talk expedition. about giving yourself a very bad chance. <laughs> <laughs> Unlucky it, name. It doesn't help. And you would have thought that seafarers were, were fairly superstitious and they wouldn't choose those names, the god of the underworld and the name Terra. So, and they certainly had a, a, a horrendous time uh, before they died. It, it was just ghastly I mean exposure cold starvation disease you name it they suffered from it and they died and that is what happens when a when a expedition goes horribly wrong anyone who was a small boy in the 80s or the 70s actually would have seen the movie Jaws and halfway through there's a great solemn moment where Quint, as he called, recalls his time on the USS Indianapolis. Yes, I think you have a family connection to Jaws. Uh, <laughs> do a shout out yeah. to uh, my son-in-law's father, who was the uh, other policeman in the film Jaws. So there you go. There you go. Hi, Jeffrey. <laughs> I hope you're listening to this. We want a review. I was meant to say actually that this is meant to be a commercial break. Please can we have a review and remember to pass these podcasts on to your friends so that we can expand our listener base. Yes. Right, on, onwards with the uh, USS Indianapolis. Thanks for identifying the music, Tom, because I didn't actually recognise it. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to put it under this whole section. <laughs> but the USS Indianapolis, it, it's a well-known story, but it's worth mentioning it because it's the greatest single loss of life in the US Navy in its history and out of 1,195 crewmen on board by the end only 316 were pulled out of the water. They had spent three or four days in the water. Many of them had 300 died as soon as the ship went down. It sank very quickly in minutes. They had the most appalling ordeal you know, uh, a lot went mad, they got salt water poisoning. The ones who did go insane while going through this, they were floated off um, and, and in a way used as decoys because 150 were then attacked by tiger sharks and oceanic white-tipped sharks. And oddly enough, you very rarely get oceanic white-tipped sharks these days. They're very, very rare, but they were far more common, far more plentiful uh, back then. Do you think the U.S. Navy has been taking, taking it out on them ever since? Yeah, I don't blame them. I mean, it, it was the most terrible ordeal. Uh, and to have 150 men uh, killed by sharks, uh, you know, when you're clinging on, when you're desperate to, to get on board you know, the, the flotsam uh, of, of the ship that had gone down, 
that was a terrible ordeal. And that, that ship, the, the reason we're calling it an, an, an expedition, a disastrous expedition, it was on a very secret mission, which is why no one really knew that the ship was in the area. It was sunk in the Philippine Sea, having taken uh, uh, uranium, the, 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 the main supply of America's uranium, to the island of Tinian, the Tinian air base there, where the little boy bomb was being assembled to be dropped on Hiroshima. So that was the mission. That was the secret mission. And it, it did go horribly wrong. It was sunk by a Japanese sub, and the, the consequences are, are known. But it was such an ordeal, such a desperate situation, that it, it's worth mentioning uh, in this podcast and in this section. It was definitely a terrible maritime disaster, an expedition that went wrong. And the tragedies can be reflected in smaller scale disastrous expeditions. And a, a good example perhaps of that is Donald Crowhurst in 1968. Yeah, and, sh and, and certainly there's a psychological dimension to this. I mean, the, you, you know, on some of those Antarctic expeditions, there were people who had breakdowns whilst on those expeditions. And th this is one of the problems. I mean, this is one of the problems Shackleton had to, to face with a member of his expedition. So you're, you've always got those problems. And certainly if you're a solo yachtsman doing a round-the-world race, you're quite often you're driven by the same sort of urges that, that propel mountaineers, climbers, to do solo expeditions. And if you're badly prepared or luck is against you, then things go badly wrong and you, tr you, you grasp for anything that's going to get you out of that situation. And Crowhurst, having set off on this global round-the-world yacht challenge, he was in a boat, the Tynemouth Electron, that simply was inadequate for the, for the task. I mean, this was a, a, a trip, a race, that was supposed to take the boats you know, s south past the Cape of Good Hope, across the... Pacific and then round Cape Horn back across the Atlantic and it was very arduous and and what happened is that someone like Crowhurst who had money problems who had an inadequate boat he was taking on water he realized his boat wasn't up to the challenge was falling behind so what did he do he pretended that he was still in the race and was transmitting back fake locations of course there was no gps in those days it was very difficult to track boats so he was just going round and round the atlantic pretending that he was uh, in the race but of course one of the yachts sort of fell out of the race and it put him in the lead so he was in an even more tricky situation and he was going to be found out so in the end after many months he disappeared over the side of his boat and that was the end of Crowhurst. And his, his boat apparently is lodged on sand dunes, is rotting away in the Cayman Islands. It was used for a while as a, a diving vessel in the Cayman Islands and has just been beached and is falling to pieces. But it, it, it's one of those sad artefacts 
no different to finding the, the, the small amount of artifacts on Mallory's body or scattered around other um, expeditions that have gone horribly wrong, uh, like the Northwest Passage, the, the, the Franklin expedition. You know, this was just another item, another sort of uh, bit of driftwood, if you like, that summarizes the disastrous expeditions of history. And he was competing with some of the very top uh, sailors, single-handed sailors at the time, Robin Knox Johnson, Che Blythe. So um, they were all, yeah, they were all household names. Yeah, and uh, you know, Crowhurst, in a, in a way, became a uh, household name because of <laughs> because of the disaster. And and again, the Eddie the Eagle of the Seas. Uh, yes, and again, you know, the, it's 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 the. It's the mystery around these expeditions that so often creates the conspiracy theories. You know, what happened to Amelia Earhart? What happened to Crowhurst? What happened to Percy Fawcett? You know, there are always going to be questions and you're always going to get the, the, the sort of left field lot who always say they were abducted by aliens or experimented on by Martians. You know, this, is, this is what tends to happen where there's an information gap. Excellent. That, that leads us neatly onto our final section, outer space. Get your probes ready. Well, indeed. And, and space, again, because it's always been considered the final frontier. The last gasp. The last gasp. You, and, and you are going to get technical failure. And th this is one of the problems, whether it's launching a satellite or launching astronauts. You know, you, there is a huge capacity for problems, for, for things falling back to Earth and things going horribly wrong, particularly if they're testing the, the edges of science, the edge of scientific knowledge. And we do feel sorry for Laika, for instance, who was sent up in Sputnik 2 with no, no ability to come back home. In, indeed, although she did come back home because she burnt up on the re-entry of Sputnik 2 in 1957. So, uh, you know, that, that actually, that spacecraft did circle the Earth, I think for about 132 days, but it's believed she died in the first few hours and they could uh, register her heartbeat and it went up three times, which, of course, it would do for anyone, uh, let alone a poor dog that was sent up. Um, with with no water and no supplies or anything else, and who was put through that unbelievable experience. So that was the first space disaster, if you like, 1957. Well, when the Russians had decided to stop killing dogs, they started um, getting into trouble with their own cosmonauts. And in 1967, the Soyuz 1 crashed. Yeah, that was Vladimir Komarov in 1967. And he was a complete pioneer, a very brave man, but the technical failure there was a parachute. That just didn't work, and so his, his spacecraft uh, plunged back to Earth. And that he was, was the, uh, the parachute that was last used in the Eiffel Tower, was it? Same one. <laughs> yeah, same impact. Yeah, it, 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 uh, probably the same shoddy workmanship. And around the same time as the Soyuz 1 crash, the... The Apollo series in uh, in the U.S. had terrible difficulties with Apollo One in January 1967. 
Yeah, there was a, a fire on the test stand that, that killed three of the crew, three crew members, yeah. and, and that was a catastrophe. And But the Apollo pro program continued, and it, it, it was that mindset, the idea that you just push through all these problems and you just get on with it. And even with the space shuttle program, you're always, if you're pushing technology, if you're pushing the limits, you are going to get accidents. There's a coincidence today. On this day, 390 years ago, the great explorer Sir Francis Drake died aboard ship off the coast of Panama. In his lifetime, the great frontiers were the oceans. And a historian later said he lived by the sea, died on it, and was buried in it. Well, today, we can say of the Challenger crew, their dedication was, like Drake's, complete. The crew of the Space Shuttle Challenger honored us for the manner in which they lived their lives. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them this morning, as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of Earth to touch the face of God. Thank you. Everyone really remembers the Challenger disaster from 1986. Everyone remembers Ronald Reagan's speech. And that was something as simple as the O-rings. And it's always been said there was human error, the idea of launching in that cold weather. You were going to get those sorts of problems. You were going to get fuel leaks. You were going to get um, technical failure. And, and there was um, not a cover-up, but the... They were trying to work out what had happened, but they, they were trying to find reasons for it to sort of go away. And it was the uh, the physicist, Richard Feynman, who really pushed out, pushed the boat out. And they came up with a, a proper report, which, um, you know, but there were revealed all, but, the O-rings. But there were always technical problems. I mean, back in late uh, 81, I was in the States and went across Florida to see a space shuttle launch and 30 seconds before takeoff, the mission was aborted. And I'd bankrupted myself as a teenager <laughs> taking a cab across Florida to watch it. So Jamie's I, uh, great big space adventure. That was the, <laughs> bit tragic, that was really. the limit. <laughs> but but so this was sort of happening all the time. Then you move forward to 2003 and the Columbia disaster. That that was a disaster coming back that into the atmosphere. That yeah. was yeah, because what had happened was that insulation foam had come off and and taken a tile off um, on on the launch of the space shuttle, and so it. it was burnt up, you know, and and disintegrated, fell apart on re-entry. So, you know, whether it's takeoff or re-entry, there there are there are a myriad of problems that have to be dealt with. Uh, but that Jamie is not the only space mission you've been on. Tell us your other space story. Well, the nearest I've come to space story is meeting in one minute. <laughs> <laughs> is meeting an astronaut, Jim Irwin, and he was on Apollo fifteen. He was the eighth man to walk on the moon in 1971 and found the Genesis rock, brought that back, uh, which was a large piece of rock uh, by the standards of the time, uh, part of the moon's crust, I think about four billion years old. But his disaster came later on because he found God on the moon. And uh, I remember him telling me that he had, he had put his thumb up and blanked out the earth and realised how fragile and beautiful the earth was and how alone we were. It inspired him to become a born-again Christian, and he started taking expeditions 
uh, and directing expeditions to Mount Ararat to fi find Noah's Ark. And he was deeply unsuccessful in that task because Noah's Ark was never there. He was plainly a Bible literalist and thought he would find the structure of Noah's Ark there or the remains of it. And that was a failure. So in a way, his disastrous expeditions came later on rather than in space. He was no Indiana Jones. Well, he was a very good man and, and fascinating to talk to. He should have stuck to space. He should have stuck to space rather than to mountains. So this is our postscript that can be the odd triumph. Yeah, Tom, I want to take you to the Andes, 1985, and that famous story of Joe Timpson and Simon Yates, that extraordinary struggle for survival, uh, when they too were uh, hit by rockfalls and problems and a very difficult descent on the Sula Grande. And terrible weather. The terrible weather. Poor old Joe Timpson was on the end of the rope. They were making this, this sort of incremental descent and thought they were doing OK. And then Joe Timpson went over the side uh, of a ledge and the wind was terrible and Simon Yates couldn't hear what was going on. And he was being pulled over the edge as well. And it would have been a fall of 150 feet, 200 feet. So he decided to cut the rope and thought that Joe Simpson was killed, thought he had fallen down a crevasse, tried to find him when he got down, and there was no sign of him. So he spent three days, I think it was, walking back to camp and, and managed to get back. Uh, but lo and behold, uh, who should turn up but Joe Simpson, who managed to crawl and limp with a broken leg uh, back from the crevasse that he had fallen down. He uh, managed to lower himself down and find an exit, it was the most from extraordinary. From the crevasse. From mm. the crevasse. And, and all these people, they end up suffering from dehydration, yeah. fatigue. I mean, just the stress of it is absolutely extraordinary. But as we said at the start, mountaineers, climbers, are, are of a very different breed. Mm. And you have to be very committed. And I seem to remember from that story the final insult as uh, Joe Simpson comes into the camp, which is just about being packed up, uh, but he gets there uh, in time is that he uh, falls into their cesspit. Yeah, so, so it should have been called touching the cloth rather than touching the void, I <laughs> Don't guess. touch your bottom. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but an amazing story. And there's that other story from uh, 2003, which was Aaron Ralston, who was hiking and climbing in Utah and had a boulder land on his arm, and he's the one who was stuck for 127 hours and had to amputate his right forearm, uh, broke the bones and amputated it with a blunt blade. I mean, it was just absolutely extraordinary. And he was suffering from dehydration, had to drink his own urine, loss of blood, in spite of the tourniquet. It, it was the most terrifying ordeal. So I'm not surprised he's now a, a, a motivational speaker, frankly. But 127 hours, that was about as long as it felt that the, the film took to watch. There, there's nothing more dull than a man in agony um, talking to and fighting a rock face. <laughs> it, I, I didn't think it was such a great movie, I have to say. Oh, well, then let's end on a low note. <laughs> let's end on <laughs> a low note. There you have it, folks. But, the, but there are always going to be extraordinary expeditions. And, and I have to give a shout-out for 
the 1212 Children's Crusade, Tom, because you know, there you had you know, tens of thousands of children heading off into the unknown. It, it was the desire to find the true cross. It was a desire to reach for something that they didn't understand, heading into a land and an environment they had no conception of. That was a disastrous expedition, but that is really the bottom line. That is really the, the theme that runs through disastrous expeditions. Yes, you can have survivors. Yes, you can have uh, amazing stories of heroism, but there are so many things that can go wrong, but whether it's through bad luck or through bad judgment. 101 ways to come undone in pursuit of the ultimate, for now, or latest prize. Yeah, just do a podcast. Jamie and I must now strap on our crampons and take Maggie to the park. Uh, actually, we need to go to the cafe because we're starving. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Tom. So it goes. You have been... <laughs> so it goes. You have been listening to Bloody Violent History with Tom Ashton and James Jackson. You can email me at talk at com and remember to share this podcast with a friend. Thank you. And good luck. <laughs> Stop making that noise. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>